Well, thank you for the invitation to come and share. It's an enormously important subject and uh, uh, we'll all be in different positions over prayer in this room. So I hope that there will be something at least, perhaps more than one thing, that is fresh to you this morning and may make a difference to your prayer life uh, as we think this through together. I was interested to read uh, yesterday that 42% of people in Britain say they pray, which is more than the number who believe in God. (laughs) (coughs) Which is an interesting statistic, because I think that is true. Uh, My son, uh, uh, who was in Clerkenwell, used to do vox pops on the particular subjects, and he went out once on prayer. And... uh, of all the subjects that he interviewed, actually, in different, uh, different days, the one on prayer, everybody seemed to pray. But what they meant by prayer, and what you mean by prayer, and what God means by prayer, are all very different, I think, uh, as we look at it together. It's the sort of coping. Even 30% of atheists are supposed to pray. Um, but only in emergencies, you know. When <laughs> <coughs> uh, I can't cope anymore. Well, there's no church in this world that can be spiritually effective without prayer. There's no church in this world who can succeed in mission effectively without prayer. And there's no church in this world that can see Christians grow without prayer. Prayer is so important, and we often talk about it, but it doesn't necessarily grip every Christian in a way which perhaps God wants it to be. John Stott, (coughs) sorry about my throat, (coughs) John Stott said, men and women are at their noblest and best when they are on their knees before God in prayer. To pray is not only to be truly godly, it is also to be truly human. For here are human beings made by God, like God, and for God, spending time in fellowship with God. Now, the the business about prayer and the thought that I've wrestled with over the years, particularly over subjects of suffering and healing, (coughs) is that if you start on the subject of prayer with yourself, you will never ever get it right. You only get prayer right if you start it with God. If you start with it from yourself, then God is there to do your bidding. He is the genie of the lamp. You rub your prayer lamp and God appears and says, yes master, what do you want me to do? And we tell him, Whereas if you start with God, you kneel before him and say, yes, Master, what do you want me to do? Because he is Lord. And that makes the whole difference to prayer. Uh, Because your approach is always with and for God. Uh, He isn't, as he is for so many people, the fourth emergency service. A wonderful example of kindergarten prayer, as I call it, which is starting with yourself, is John Ward, MP, of many years ago, O Lord, thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London, and likewise I have recently purchased an estate in the county of Essex. 
I beseech you to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquakes. <laughs> but as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county. For the rest of the counties, thou mayest deal with them as thou art pleased. <laughs> well, that's kindergarten prayer uh, in a rather lovely way. It's a wonderful quote, which I've used a lot. Um, but um, the difficulty is if we start with prayer, it tends to be what I want. Um, I want healing. I want success in my exams. Even to the point of I want fine weather on my holiday. It gets a bit much when I want my football team to win. But it sort of starts, starts from that sort of angle. And so many people say, I've given up on God, I don't believe in God. And when you examine it, about 80% of those who don't say they don't believe in God are because they had the wrong concept of prayer. They prayed for their mother not to die. They prayed for their child to be healed. These things were not delivered, therefore there is no God, therefore I give up on God. So if you start from the wrong angle, you're going to end up really without any faith in God. Um, and it's like a child in, in the sort of uh, supermarket, you're going around fingering this, and I want that, and I want this, and I want that. And then when they don't get it, they stamp their feet, saying, oh, I want that. And then, of course, the coup de grace is, you don't love me if they don't give me that. And now, that's exactly, if you think about it, what people do with God. You don't love me because you didn't give me what I wanted. Huckleberry Finn was uh, told that if you, you could have whatever you prayed for. And he, uh, he wanted fish hooks. And so he prayed for fish hooks and he didn't get fish hooks. And so he said, so there isn't anything in it after all. And it's that sort of concept that um, you really have to challenge. It, it, it worries me desperately that so many people uh, think in these terms. Augustine, many, many years ago, of course, St. Augustine said, our hearts are disordered. Things we ought to love third and fourth in our lives are first. We may acknowledge God, but his favour and presence are not as important as prosperity, success, status, love, pleasure, and I might add, health. Um, if, uh, for instance, financial security is the main source of our confidence, uh, then if we fail, we'll start to pray. What Tim Keller calls worrying in God's direction. Um, worrying in God's direction is a rather good phrase, really. Uh, but it's a bit late. So what is the focus and starting point of the prayer, of, of prayer life? I hope I've said enough to say that it's God and it's so, it's so obvious that it stares us in our face and very often things that are so obvious we don't see because they're so close in on us. But when we want to know how to pray we must stand with the disciples and say to the Lord Jesus how do you pray? And we hear him say well you ask for this and you ask for this and you ask for that and you ask for that. And you know, as well as I do, because it's been in your bloodstream from the earliest days of a child, that it is our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, before there's any mention of our needs. 
Now, if you don't get that right, then prayer is always wrong. So prayer has to be soaking ourselves in God. That's what it is about. He longs for us to to know him and to, to share with him. But the main purpose of prayer is the forwarding of his kingdom, the forwarding of his purposes on earth. And things like physical needs and other needs are, are quite secondary to that. They come in in his compassion, but they are further down the line. So the real force of prayer uh, is uh, moving his kingdom, moving his people uh, forward. And um, it makes a whole sort of uh, difference to it. Um, I mean, it's in a way sort of engaging with prayer, um, Metropolitan Anthony was someone who um, I heard on, on one or two occasions. I found him very, very interesting, a very deep man in the Greek Orthodox tradition. But he said this, God is always real, always himself. If we could stand face to face with him uh, as he is and perceive his objective reality, things might be simpler. But we manage in a subjective way to blur this truth this reality in front of which we stand, and we replace the real God by a pale picture of him, even worse, by a God who is unreal because of our one-sided and poor conception of him. And I think it presses us to say, in one of the beautiful passages of, of the Bible, John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. Now the, the key is there. What he longs for is that we might come closer to him and we might know him closer to us. And the result of that is fruit for his kingdom. Uh, and this sense of drawing to him. Paul, um, later on in his life, he wasn't a young man when he wrote it, but in Philippians 3.10 when I expounded Philippians um, at uh, Keswick a number of years ago, I spent, uh, because it, I was in, then retired, I was able to spend several months on it and um, discovered so much more than I knew, about 90% more than I ever knew before. Um, but the, the one place that it stopped me in my tracks was Philippians 3.10. I want to know you. I want to know God and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. What? He wasn't a young man. He's an older man. He still longs to know more of God. He still longs to be lining up with God's purposes, um, to know the power of his resurrection and living and the fellowship of his sufferings, both things. But it's I want to know. And I've never got over that text. It's stuck in my spiritual gut, as it were, and it's still there. That the greatest desire is I might want to know him more. When John Stott was asked um, what was his greatest ambition, it was to know Christ more and to be more like him. So if that's our ambition, that is the driving force of our prayer, time and time again, just loving him, just coming back in love, starting the day with adoring him, um, being, um, many and many of you do that, this morning at my breakfast table, as always, um, I... I just worship him um, uh, before I start my breakfast and, and just love him and thank him for the wonderful things uh, of being in life. I'm sure many of you do that. 
But this is where it is. It's a relationship with him, which comes in many ways into a conversation with him uh, as we come along. It's coming along the train. I'm sort of going over my notes, but also sort of, uh, not that I'm anywhere near them at the moment. But but also sort of praying that Christ might be with us and open this up and and, and enable me to, to do the best I possibly can. And so um, there are places here for meditation, but uh, meditation is part of our longing to know him more, wanting to worship him, to love him, and to be part of his purposes in the world. So let's come back uh, to the familiar grounds of of the Lord's Prayer and the relationship of Father. Many of you will know um, uh, of a very famous uh, Muslim woman in... uh, Bangladesh, was it? I've forgotten. I think it was Bangladesh. Um, she was very, very high-born. She had all the servants and everything. And she came to faith in Christ. Um, and um, she, she wrote a book. Uh, her name was Bilquis Sheik. She wrote a book, if you remember. And it, the title of it was, I Dared to Call Him Father. And to her, to be able to call God Father was a revolution. A Muslim can't call, call God Father. You can't have that relationship with God in that sort of way. But it's something which, which we take for granted, but it's an incredible privilege to come to him as father uh, and to know him in that way. She was pretty critical of many of the Christians she met after that. But I don't blame her either. It is this privilege to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's something we know, we have this right, we've given this right, but there's something more to it. It's not just up here, it's down here, isn't it? It is, as Romans 8 says, the spirit witnessing with our spirit, the, the spirit enabling us to say, Abba, Father. We didn't think, I'll say, Abba, Father. The spirit wells it up within us, this sense of his fatherhood. And so, this knowledge of him as father is both a conviction of the head and an experience of the heart that we love him as our father uh, and as his children. And um, it's a relationship that obviously uh, one fosters as in any family. It's something that that, that means we can slip into his presence at any time and bring uh, whatever may be there before him. And this is part of our relationship with him. Uh, I remember when uh, we were rebuilding uh, All Souls Langham Place and uh, as you probably know we, we, it involved in the end taking the floor out and going down 13 feet so we had a huge pit where the church used to be uh, at least inside and halfway through in those days you could start a project without having all the money we, we raised it as we went and we were halfway through the building and not halfway through the giving and I was walking back from uh, other church in St. Peter's Veer Street where we were worshipping um, just behind John Lewis, if you know it, in Cavendish Square. I was in Cavendish Square. It was a beautiful evening um, and there was nobody else in the square, just me. And I panicked. Uh, and I said to God, well, what are we going to do if we don't raise the money? And I just felt he went absolutely like that. It was like, like someone gripping me. It was physical. Uh, actually holding on to me. And the words into my head were, if you do fail, Michael, you'll fail with me. That was all I needed to know. He didn't promise me success, but he said, I'm your father. You're my child. We're in this relationship. That's not something that's going to change. 
even if there's a failure. And it's that relationship which we have with him, isn't it? That you can say and, and speak with him. We had a, a huge celebration in, the, in Chester Diocese for the 450th anniversary of the, of, of the diocese. And uh, I took the opportunity for us to, to go for it as a diocese. And we took the Rudy, which is the race course in Chester. And we set about this Sunday, we, we planned for it, for every parish to come from all over the diocese. It was a daring thing to do, a huge, huge marquee, I mean, uh, and all the other things going on. It was like a great sort of fair ground. And it rained every day of the, of the month before. And on the day itself, the only place that the sun shone in Britain <coughs> was literally where we were and in the Gower Peninsula. In fact, a farmer afterwards sent me an aerial picture of the whole country. And people said, I suppose you prayed. And I said, well, no, I didn't, because I, I don't think that's what you do with prayer. But I did say to my father, it would be very helpful if it was. <laughs> well, that's what a relationship is. You can't demand, but you can come and share things with him. Being in hospital and having had a pretty serious operation when things were pretty dangerous... And, and for the first two days, I was so, I suppose it's the morphine, but I was in such a state that I wouldn't even let the chaplain bring me communion. I couldn't pray. So I thought, well, preacher, teach yourself, just hold on to one thing about your father and, and just one thing about God one day and then another thing the next day. And then the third day, it was this again. It was like a blanket. It really was like a blanket of his sheer love but this is what relationship is you just put yourself back in his hands and hold on to him I'm sure so many of you know this I don't have to repeat it but Matthew 6 says don't worry what you will eat or drink or or wear good grief most people spend the whole time doing that (laughs) the pagans run after these things your heavenly father knows you need them so what's first seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get it right. What does God want? Your needs are, yes, he understands, but they're not the major meaning of prayer. Or again, people want to sort of twist things, like Romans 8.28, which I find so infuriating that people, they just misquote that verse. All things work together for good to them that love God. Is that what it says? No, it isn't. And you take it out and say, you know, I had good weather on holiday and that's what Romans 8.28 says. Or I found a parking place. I have a relative who does this and I, I, mean, I, I just run up the wall and down the other side. <laughs> and you have to say, but if you look at your Bible, it's in the middle of a whole amazing chapter about suffering. So you can't do that about parking places in the middle. It's about suffering. And it doesn't just say that work together for good to them that love God. It is also, and are called according to his purpose. Now you begin to see where prayer is going. Prayer is about his purposes, not about our comfort. And what are his purposes? It goes on that you might be more conformed to the image of God. So suddenly everything's working together in our lives to help us, if we are willing to cooperate, to growing more as Christians, not to having a parking place or good weather on holiday. So it's a misuse of scripture the terrible misuse of scripture uh, which is uh, by so many people but again 
the purposes are there. That's the bigger thing of God's work amongst us as his Father. And hallowed be your name. Again, there's a tension for us in a way because and there was a time a little way back when, when people spoke about being high on Jesus, which I, I found, I don't know about if you remember it, but it's so offensive. This, this lack of, of reverence for God as God, which we see all around us, of course, with comedians and all the rest of it, uh, the awful things that make us absolutely weak, really. But there is a great sense in which you have to get a balance between reverence and, and familiarity in prayer. In the days of morning prayer, and if you remember that, we used to sing the Vanity every week, it was Psalm 95, and that says, Come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker. Now, we don't often kneel these days, but I'm sorry we don't in a way, although my back as it is is probably a good thing, but, but there is a sense of reverence about kneeling. I'm not, I'm not pressing the point, don't worry about that, I'm pressing the attitude that there is a reverence for God as, long, as, as well as the familiarity, the, the wonderful privilege of being his child. And the two things have to be held together. It's a bit like respecting your parents, but also knowing their love. And if you get to disrespecting your parents and expect their love, there's a sort of clash. I mean, even as a, as a bishop sometimes, if you've got some, it happened near the end of it, uh, a chap coming for, to, be, to be ordained, he comes in through the door and... Hi, Mike, he says, you know, and you think, yeah, okay. Uh, you sort of 26-year-old. And, uh, and although you don't want to, to hang on to position, there is a, a balance between respect and familiarity, but particularly with God. Measure this. How reverent are we as we come in prayer? How much do we begin our prayers by waiting upon God? How much do we long to love him, to worship him and adore him? Or do we go straight in with our requests? So it's worship. It's love. It's, it's a great desire to, to know him and uh, to honour him. Then your kingdom come. Oh, we know this phrase. The trouble is, I'm using familiarity, but how long do you pray with all your heart that the kingdom will come in Wanash? And this is your responsibility as a church. And you should be aching for the kingdom to come and, and to pray for, for God's mercy to, to be happening. It's extraordinary how people go back to this kindergarten prayer. I mean, I've been to Christian unions on several occasions, but on several occasions, and they say, well, we have our prayer meeting before, you know, we have a prayer gathering before you speak, and you go with them. And you know, this is absolutely true, I've been in major Christian unions when all they've prayed for is each other's colds or problems with their bunions, as I call it, bunion prayer. Um, <laughs> all their sort of bits and pieces. And never even mention the meeting or me as the speaker. And you just think, just a minute. You're absolutely cock-eyed. You've got prayer entirely the wrong way up. Whereas waiting upon God for his blessing on this meeting and for his uh, sensing and touching people and the spirit to move amongst people. This is what you should be praying for. You should be praying for your kingdom to come not for your bunions. Uh, They can wait. And so, start to sort of move this out. What's your first prayer for your relatives? Now, your first... I want to suggest that our first prayer for our relatives is that they might, if they don't know Christ, 
And your first prayer is your longing that they might come to know Christ. And this, I know, is a great burden on many of our hearts, um, uh, whether it's children or grandchildren. But this is your first prayer. Their exams, their successes are very secondary as far as prayer is concerned. For those who are Christians, to pray that they may be growing in Christ, may find God's blessing in their lives, may be able to be of service. This is the focus of your prayer for your relatives and friends, for that matter. When you've got the priorities round the right way, you see how it alters everything. And for your fellow Christians, the wonderful example that Jesus gives of, of praying for Peter, remember at the moment of denial, to just before the crucifixion, and he turns to Peter when he sees Peter, and he says, Satan has asked, has asked to sift you uh, as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon. Now, what do you think? You remember what he prayed for him? He didn't pray that you're, you won't deny me, which, you'd, which I would have, think I would have done, to pray that you know, you'll wake up and not deny me, Simon. No, he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See the difference? That your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. Now just take that apart and see what that's saying. You right onto the finger of the pulse of, of the need of, of Peter. Yes, he's going to learn through his failure and use it. Now here's your Bibles. Turn to Colossians 1 and verse 9. 9 to 12. Now this is Paul praying for fellow Christians. Now I want you to find four things in Colossians 1, please, to pray for other people. Knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives, uh, which is what the phrase says, but we can only get knowledge of his will up here. Anything else? To live a worthy life. Yeah. Bear fruit in every good work. Yeah. Grow in the knowledge of God, number four. There's a fifth one, actually. Strengthen with all power. Right, okay. Now, I'm going to give you, this, I've written them all down for you. I've, in other words, I've got the answers before you've given them. But, um, so that you don't have to bother now in your notes. So, here are five things. Knowledge of his will, to live a, a life worthy of the Lord, to please him in every way, to bear fruit in every good work, to grow in the knowledge of God and strengthen all power. Now just imagine, how much have you ever prayed that for a fellow Christian? It took me years to wake up to this. Years and years and years to wake up to that. That's the real purpose of prayer, especially not least of the minister as far as they can pray for everybody. But that praying for my Christian friends, again, is not for their bunions first. It is for these things that Jill may know God's will more and etc. Now turn to Philippians 1, 9 to 11. We've got five up already. We're going to have another three now. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I can't get all that in, but that's what it is. So it's a love which is a knowing and deeply insightful love uh, towards other people, right? But you may be able to discern what is best. And a third one, may be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. 
Ephesians 1 now, 15 to 19. Two from here. That you may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. To know him better. And the next one, we've been singing about it. The hope to which he has called you and his incomparable power. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Two items here. That brings us up to 12. So strengthening within the power with Christ in your hearts. And one more. You may be rooted and grounded in love. Grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ and be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. So knowledge of his will, live a worthy life, bear fruit, grow in the knowledge of God, strengthen with all power, love and deep insight, pure and blameless lives. Hear me seriously. These are the major prayers of the New Testament. Put together, they are, they are the prayers of the New Testament. There are very few others. There are others, but I mean, these are the major ones. Apart from, of course, um, our Lord's Prayer in John 17. So what does this say to you and to me? It says what I've been trying to say from the beginning, that the greatest concern in prayer is about spiritual growth, spiritual evangelism for the kingdom of God. It is so obvious that if everybody followed Paul's example and we prayed like this for one another, the the church would grow enormously, not just in numbers, but in reality and therefore in impact. So I challenge you. I've done in various churches. I've put it down into 12 items. And one way of doing this would be that when you're praying for others in your fellowship group, for instance, or wherever it is you're in, or other members of the church, that um, in January, say, you pray for them with item one. And in February, you take item two. And this takes a bit of discipline and then three. You don't have to do it like that, but, but putting it into the 12 items means that you begin to pray for people in this way. It makes a huge difference. Instead of praying, God bless Mary, you pray this week that she may know the love of God deeper and more fuller in her life. Instead of praying for, for John, you're praying that he may know the will of God for his life. Suddenly it's very different than saying, God bless John. Do you see? No, it doesn't have to be, obviously, over a monthly pattern. It can be at any point. Um, but it, it transforms the way in which you pray for one another. And the obvious point was this. Why did Paul, why did Paul agonise over the Colossians and the Philippians and the Ephesians? Because he knew, as we all do, that when Christian lives are really being fulfilled and living in the light of Christ, they have an impact in the world. And a church that is going to grow spiritually is going to be a church that prays in this sort of way. It is so big that I want you just to think about it just for a moment. Just pause about it and see how you could possibly do this. Interesting, I went back to a church once and mentioned this and somebody in the front row said, picked up a piece of paper and showed it to me and said, yes, this is what our fellowship group's praying this month because I'd done it before at the church ground. And, the, and the, they, in the fellowship group, reminded each other of what, um, what it was for this month. 
Do you see what this would happen? But you're praying also for yourself in these terms. So we're into whatever this month we're in. We're in January now, so you could start it really. You could start praying that for yourself. Just as you go to work, just as you walk down the street to pray, Lord, may I know whatever January is, I've forgotten that. Um, may I know your will more fully in my life. I just want to, it's so big that I, I think I want to let it soak in and, and it, it's easy to say it, but it is so big in the New Testament that somehow you don't see it. You love the passage, we love reading them. But then you say, but this is the example of one of the great prayers of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's a great burden on my heart, but... Um, and then, of course, there are other prayers, um, prayers for opportunities to witness that um, God may uh, give us opportunities. And I've always, I always found it quite difficult. I mean, in the earlier days, you were all sort of supposed to sort of, if you were on a train, somehow find some excuse to talk to the guy next to you. Or some, some people can do that. Sometimes if you're the other guy, it's the last thing you want. But, um, particularly if you're on a plane to America or something. <laughs> But then you hear people who've done it very successfully. I said to God, I find this difficult. Um, what can I do? And I thought it through during the time I was at um, Theological College. and I was working in the Charing Cross Hotel in my um, vacation. So I said, could we do it this way, Lord? I, I promise you that I will take the, any opportunity and opening to speak if it's started by somebody else. Do you know... I've had that for the rest of my life and it's a wonderful thing to pray. But you've got to promise him and you've got to do it. So I thought I was quite safe in the Charing Cross Hotel. They were a heathen lot. (laughs) (laughs) But on Wednesday at tea, they started talking about the Bible. I almost said to God, that isn't fair, but it was. (laughs) It was fair. They were gracious of him. And so in I went. And so it's been ever since. Rather, I mean, sometimes there is an opportunity, obviously, that you can take. But if someone else has started it, you know, a livery dinner one night, the wife of the master, you sit at the top table all this time and only have a person on your left and your right for three hours, and they've got you for three hours too. And she turned to me and she, she started, really, on, on, on why God doesn't answer prayer over suffering. Well, I just finished my book on suffering, so I had it all at my fingertips. She just went through just about every question I've dealt with in the book. And at the end, she said, I surrender, she said. So I surrender. <laughs> but she started it. And I said to her, well, now let's get back to the fact, let's look at the real God, not at the God you want him to be. You formed this idea of God. And until you get rid of that, you won't understand the real God. But it's if people give you the opportunity... Um, say something and you you promise God well it's just a suggestion you're probably much braver than I am but um, this is how I've done it and for ministry of the word how much do you pray for those who are praying on Sunday how much do you pray for the preparation I was interested when I was at All Souls Lang a place every now and again I was facing a very difficult sermon I used to ask the congregation to pray because I got this difficult sermon and that week it was as easy as anything. Uh, if only they prayed every week, it would have been easier every week. <laughs> but it's true, if you pray, that this is what God wants, his word preached and expounded, and the preacher needs to have inspiration. 
Uh, it's not easy starting with a blank sheet of paper, as it were, and, and seeking to know how to handle this material. Paul would pray, uh, Colossians 4, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for us, for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Open a door for us. Open the opportunity. So, your will be done. We haven't got to our needs yet. Your will be done. Uh, This must be meant from the heart. Not my will, but your will be done. We know the supreme example of that is in Gethsemane. And uh, Hebrews 5 says about it, that uh, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Well, he was heard, and in the agony of Gethsemane, he was heard, but he knew it was God's will that was an important thing, his father's will, and so he wasn't delivered from suffering. But he laid it before his father, and... He had said, not my will, but yours be done, which is the bottom line. And so his great desire is for the will of God to be done in any situation. And it is clearly for any Christian who means business with God, the same thing about the direction of our life. It's vital we don't decide, I think this is a great trap, sometimes we decide what God's will is for him and then ask him to bless it. And sometimes we think we're right and there's some dangerous things going on about people thinking they have a particular word from the Lord, and it obviously isn't. But they're convinced Whitfield, way back in 1743, a long time ago, I know, his first child was a son. You remember Whitfield was a famous great preacher. And uh, he had a deep sense that the child would be a great preacher of the gospel. He called him John. At his baptism, he preached a sermon on what God was going to do through this child. Four months later, the child died. And Whitfield was deeply convicted that his thoughts had presumed to know God's will without any basis of scripture. And that's a danger, I think. I think of someone who who was very close to, who was uh, dying very young with with a family. And she really got sorted out. Um, She really thought through and she she just radiated Christ and... uh, and a lot of people were praying, obviously, and were praying for her. But then in the last week of her life, she was only about a few days, she was obviously was dying. And she just uh, longed for everyone. She wanted people to, be, to know Christ and so on. But four people that week, four different people in the church, rang up the husband and said, I have a word from the Lord that your wife is going to be healed. Now, every one of those four was wrong. Did they learn from the lesson? I don't know. They don't dare say what you think God's will is unless you know it's God's will. It's a very damaging thing to do, to presume on God, if you don't know. I think it's it's easy for any of us to do that. Again, the the physical healing and... Um, people say, well, there we are, you know, Jesus healed people. <laughs> yes, he did. Over healing issues, it has to come to the same sort of uh, point over the will of God. For me, the operative area is 2 Corinthians 12, uh, where, as you know, uh, Paul has the thorn in the flesh, which is obviously physical. 
and uh, how he prays three times that it, that it will be removed. Now we don't know whether that was over three months or three times just uh, in a week or over periods of time. We don't know, fortunately, otherwise we'd be very legalistic about it. But what it means is he meant business with God and he came back and back and back in prayer. And then God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength will be made perfect in weakness. And when I was doing this at a house party once, I remember, um, and this bloke came at me and nearly knocked me off the ship and he bounced at me um, outside by the rail. And he was very angry about all this um, because... um, but he said, I suppose that anyhow Paul had to say, well then I'll put up with it. I said, no. He didn't say that. Do you know what he said? He said, um, in response to that, then I will boast, it's extraordinary, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. In other words, I brought this to God. He understands the need. I've left it with him and he's brought home to my own life and heart that this is not going to be the way and so I want to take this and turn it back for his glory and use it for his glory. John Skinner, who used to be the vicar of St. Saviour's Guildford, uh, says that at one occasion uh, he went into the old hospital on um, the Farnham Road, just going out, I don't know what it is now, but there used to be a hospital there apparently. And um, he went into the ward to visit an elderly lady who was a member of the congregation, a lovely, lovely lady. As he went in, apparently it was a sort of mixed ward, uh, there was this merchant navy man who was absolutely foul-mouthed guy and he, as soon as he saw a vicar and a dog collar, he went for him with every expletive he could think of about this God who was letting him suffer and well, you know, what was God like, he was supposed to heal everybody and all the usual stuff that you get poured out at him. And he said... You know, uh, why is this happening to me? Then he went down the ward eventually and he came to the lady at the back. uh, She was down the other end of the ward and she said, why has this happened to me? But she meant it differently. She said, what is God going to do through me being in this ward? She immediately turned it in that direction. And so as soon as she could, she was ministering to people in her dressing gown and moving around the beds. How can I turn this for God? That's the difference. If this is what I have, then if I can, I'll I'll use this for God. So yes, we pray. Obviously, we bring our needs because um, this is part of being part of the family of God. One of the earliest books by um, Hallersby on prayer many years ago was a classic. And if ever you see it, you should get it. It's a valued item in my own bookshelf. And he tells of a guy called Samuel Zeller who was a Swiss healer. He wouldn't say he, he healed, God healed, but he was the agent. And huge numbers of people came to him. And huge numbers of people were healed through him. And he himself had a near fatal illness, something at any moment could have killed him. Throughout his life, he never was released from his own illness. But he ministered to other people. And he would pray over people uh, that if God is uh, it's your will that they might be healed but if it is not your will that they be healed then give them the grace to take this um, uh, illness and use it in the right way or something, phrases like that and people have come back to me 
just to save you having to do that later, and say, oh, that's lack of faith, you say, if it is your will. And I say, it's the absolute opposite. It's the opposite of lack of faith. It's sheer faith in God, that his purposes are bigger, and, and you want his will. So he used to say that uh, over people. And as I say, many people were healed, but many others uh, were helped through his confidence and the way in which he dealt with them. What I feel with all my heart I want to get across is that, that prayer is about relationship with God. It is about his kingdom. It is about his will. It is about his glory. And that is the main purpose of prayer. The spiritual growth, the spiritual effectiveness, the advance of the kingdom against evil. This is the main purpose of prayer. Now we come to the needs, obviously in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, which is basically needs rather than luxuries, as we know. Uh, this is something which is so natural to share with God. They will bring things to him and talk with him about them and converse with him through the day or pause at your office desk and pray for help and understanding about what you're doing or grace and this sort of thing is part of the needs and, and sometimes very specific needs. When uh, we were leading a house party in Corfu, we, we took people over to Albania two or three occasions. We were in this very poor place called Sarande in the bottom of, of uh, Albania for a couple of nights. In the evening, the, the, it was arranged for us to go up the top of a sort of fairly high sort of hill, sort of mountain, uh, for this restaurant, sort of pretty, you know, a bit like this place, near posh. And, um, <laughs> and Myrtle stood up on a, on a barrel, it was a barrel to get a photo, there was fantastic views with her camera, she was very keen with the film. And the, the lid of the barrel gave way. I don't know whether you know, but she had very, very thin skin because of um, eczema all her life. And she ripped her leg right the way down. She was gashed right the way open, all the way down, pouring with blood. And uh, it wasn't the easiest place for this to happen. So they did everything. We got, fortunately, quite good towels in the, in the ladies' toilet, which they sort of paper towels and sort of wrapped it round. And the manager then took us back down as quick as possible to get us out of his hotel, I think, and, um, and down, down to where we were staying. It was quite late in the evening. As we came through, I noticed a couple of pharmacy signs, and I got a, into bed at um, the hotel, and then I went out, because what she desperately needed was a bandage that would go around, a particular type of bandage that would hold it together. And you say, well, how can you do that? You couldn't go to the hospital because she couldn't take stitches and you can't explain to someone in Albanian uh, about not having stitches. So I went back to where these pharmacies were and they were both closed. And I stood on the crossroads in Sarando and I said to God, what do I do? I mean, we, she desperately needs this. Where on earth do I find one in Sarando at this time of night? And I went into... Um, one shop, and they said, well, it'll be, the pharmacy's over there, and it'll be open in the morning, so thank you very much. And then I, I said, what do I do? Which way do I go at this crossroads? So I thought, well, if, you don't, if I don't have any conviction, I'll go forward. So I went forward, and then there was a little shop down in the basement. And I looked down in it, and the man looked up at me and said, come on down. So I went down, and it was a crockery shop, so it didn't sell bandages. <laughs> but I, he, he spoke English which was a help, and I explained what he was, and he said, oh, I know a pharmacy that will be open, I'll take you to it. 
And so it was a very interesting, quite a long, very interesting conversation because it had been totally atheist, the country. And so he didn't know anything about Christianity and hadn't known anything about Islam either because it had been. So that was interesting. That's a side product. Um, and then we got to the pharmacy and he said, oh, it's shut. And then the lady walking in front of us, tall lady, turned around and said, I'm the pharmacist. I'll go back and open it for you. Now, that's impossible in a dull little Albanian town at nine o'clock at night. But that's the sort of thing we can share. We do share with God, isn't it? This is part of being his family. So yes, we share our needs. Don't want to decry that. That's part of life. And as Philippians um, puts it, we uh, make our requests known to God. We, we don't demand. We don't tell him what he's got to do. We, we, we tell him what our needs are. And how he solves them is often very different from what we might expect. So I, I find this a wonderful privilege to be a Christian and to be able to share with God all the things of life, but never to demand, only to lay these things before him. And sometimes it has to be an arrow prayer. I was once in, in the House of Lords and um, a very famous person, who I dare not tell you his name, but he... He was a very famous, rather powerful sort of person. He came out, there is nothing left to hope for. Well, there we are. I had to promise God, didn't I? Uh, (laughs) I wasn't going to fail him, but I did tremble a bit in front of this guy in the House of Lords. So I sent two arrow prayers up to God for help. And I said to him, but in Christ there's everything to hope for. And he immediately stopped in his tracks, turned round, and then we started to converse. So there are times when arrow prayers are very necessary and we put them up to God in emergencies. Francis Schaeffer said this, I must ask very gently, is it not true that our prayers for ourselves are almost entirely aimed at getting rid of the negative at any cost rather than praying that the negatives be faced in the proper attitude? I think that's very insightful. So we ask and we trust and we put ourselves in him. You know the prayer of the Confederate soldier of 1864 who actually died in the last battle of the siege of Richmond. I asked God for strength that I might, that I might cope, I suppose, something like that. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I prayed for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. And so, um, given to you this morning is what we call a checklist on devotional prayer, which will be uh, perhaps a guide. Uh, This is given to you this morning as well, just now, which gives you sort of the usual pattern for devotional prayer. But on the back is something different. This is a possible pattern. I found, I found in the end, I found it quite difficult sometimes sorting out because when I've been young, you got a little prayer book that said, Monday, pray for Africa. Well, what do you pray for Africa, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it's ridiculous, really. Eventually, I came to this point that if, if, I, if I had thematic prayer, I had a theme for each day of the week, then that would be something that I could operate with my daily prayer wherever I was, if I was on the train or walking down the street, as well as in my private time in the morning. 
And so this is the suggestion of the, of the sort of way in which I do it. I've given to you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So Monday is going to be people with whom I work from my angle. That was my staff and so on. And people who seem to be enemies. Tuesday was world mission or missionary people, missionary society or mission persons in particular. Wednesday, all my relatives in depth and spiritual depth, that is praying for them, not just in the general way, but praying for them in this particular deep way and Christian members of the church. Then leaders in the local church on Thursday, etc., friends in ministry and world leaders and political leaders on Friday. Now I know when I'm on the train, if I haven't got anything with me, that it's Wednesday, this is the day I'm going to pray for my relatives. And I know on Tuesday if I'm walking down the street, this is the day I'm praying for my missionaries. So you don't necessarily have to have a list written out all the time, but it, you've got a theme for the day, and this is something that can be... It really works. It's worked for me for the last 30 years, and I would never change it, because it gives a real pattern to the week in your prayer, rather than always praying around the same old things every day and, and not having a pattern to it. So I've given you that um, just um, to save having to sort of spell it out any further. And so, um, finally, the church itself at prayer also needs to see and we've had all these different things I've mentioned but there are times when the church has to come together to pray it's very difficult to run a regular prayer gathering in a church these days I know that Um, particularly when you live so far out of London and commuting and timing and all the rest of it but really the church does have to come times when it comes together and really means business at a church with prayer and uh, I don't mean little groups that have feely feely stuff I mean people who mean business. Like the Church of God in Acts, it faces difficulties, it faces problems, it comes together and it prays, Sovereign Lord. And it means business with God in prayer. And in in some of the big projects I've been in, that's what the Church has done. It has meant business with God. It's had an evening of prayer when we've come together. and, And we've done it in different ways. But nonetheless, this is the burden of the Church, to know God's will or God's way or God's purpose. Uh, and particularly to pray. And, and I believe that there are times when you ought to be praying, in any case, for all the streets and roads in your parish, being for people and your neighbours and so on. Oh, you're in a mission situation. And for the church to have a real burden for its parish, um, praying together as well as individually, as we should do for those who live around us and so on. And uh, for the organisations, much more that could be said, but I'm not going to go any further. So I'm going to end just with John Stott's daily prayer, which he used to begin the day with. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause uh, your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Holy, blessed and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy on me. It's a very good way to start the day.